Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Today's reading is from Mark 3, 7-35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed so many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went upon the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless his first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So you couldn't uh, probably find a, a better Mother's Day text than one where Jesus uh, says, leave me alone, Mom. So there's your Mother's Day message. Mothers, leave your good sons alone. All right? Today we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, there are two main questions that Mark's Gospel is, is seeking to answer as we go through his whole Gospel. The first is who is Jesus? As you probably have noticed over the last several weeks, that theme has been quite uh, prominent in the first three chapters. 
We've seen Jesus establishing himself with the authority in his teaching, with the authority in his healings, with the authority to forgive sins, with his authority as Lord over the Sabbath, with his authority over the traditions of the scribes. He is establishing himself very clearly to to belong to only one possible place, and that is Lord. But the second question that Mark wants uh, us to focus on as, as we go through this gospel is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? This theme is going to get a lot more attention in today's passage, and it will show up more often as we go forward in the book. This second question is of utmost importance because the news that Jesus is Lord, Son, and Savior is only good news is if he is my Lord, Son, and Savior. The latter statement is only true. He is my Lord, Son, and Savior if I am a true follower of Jesus. Mark brings this second question to the fore right here at this point in Jesus' ministry for one reason. One very important reason. You see it in our text. There are crowds, large crowds, starting to follow Jesus. Jesus' ministry has has started to, to bring in people from everywhere. And there are, are just large crowds all around him all the time. The question then for us is, what do we make of these crowds? How do we categorize the people in these crowds? Are they true followers of Jesus? Are they saved? Or are they just bandwagoning? Are you guys familiar with with the idea of bandwagoning. So nobody around these parts ever wears a royal shirt. But if you go to my hometown, royal shirts are everywhere. And they were on everybody two years ago when we won the World Series. They're disappearing uh, as their record goes further and further below 500. But that's an example of bandwagoning. Hitching on to something popular, to something that feels good, that something that, that, that makes everybody feel like they belong. Hitching on to something because it is popular. Because everybody uh, holds to it. And so if we hitch ourselves to it, we get some of the glow, we get some of the benefits from it. Like feeling like we belong. Like getting access, getting a place to, to, to have a conversation with people. Like maybe hiding in plain sight. These different benefits go along with bandwagoning. But as we see, bandwagoning follows popularity. And when popularity is lost, then a lot of people start following away. Bandwagoning puts on the appearance of the real thing. But by definition is superficial. And does not usually last. So an important question for us today is, does bandwagoning exist with the church? My wife and I have noticed, as we have moved into uh, Baton Rouge area, and the South in general, how much more overtly religious and Christian the culture is down here. Where I came from, you didn't talk about church as naturally and freely as people do uh, around here. It's a, it's a distinction. The culture down here is very much Christian. And with that situation, does that invite bandwagoning? 
For, for example, I um, drive around and I notice billboards all over the place with Bible verses on them. And they're advertising some lawyer. I can't tell you what his name is. Why would he do that? Why, why would a lawyer want to advertise Bible verses? If not because there is some benefit in bandwagoning with a Christian culture. I honestly don't know what blessed be the peacemakers and sue them have to do with one another. But somehow it's working. I say that because it reveals to us that we are in a place where bandwagoning can happen. And maybe this person is not bandwagoning, I don't know, but it would fit if it, if it were. In the culture, there is value in claiming Christianity that has nothing to do with following Christ with your life. That's what it means to be in a Christian culture. So my question then to us, are you bandwagoning? Maybe you are here today to make your spouse happy. Maybe you are here today to make mom happy. Maybe you are here today to raise your kids right. Maybe you are here to make contacts for your business or to hope to find some uh, mate with good character. Or maybe you're here just because it's something you do. But in a culture that makes bandwagon Christians possible, we must make sure we understand what it means to be a true follower of Christ. How do we know whether we are bandwagoning or whether we are being a true follower of Christ? That's the critical question. Today's text is here to address that question. Mark is going to show us three marks of the true follower of Christ in distinction to the bandwagoner. Let us now look at the text. We're going to look at verses 7 through 19 first to look at the the first mark of a true follower of Jesus. A true follower of Jesus, first of all, answers Jesus' call. A true follower of Jesus answers Jesus' call. Verses 7 through 19 involves uh, two things. It involves a description of these uh, large crowds that are coming to Jesus to experience his healing, and it also describes Jesus calling to himself the twelve apostles. What we see in this passage is Mark is contrasting the crowd with his followers, his disciples. He is showing a distinction. Look at verse 9 specifically. Verse 9 says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Mark is recognizing that there is a difference between belonging to the crowd and being a disciple. You see, followers or disciples are more than consumers. And if we were to define what the crowd was primarily about, was about consuming Jesus. They wanted to find Jesus because Jesus was a healer. Jesus was a fixer. So we look in verse 11, or I'm sorry, in verse 10, uh, as we saw in verse 9, they were afraid that he would crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. This crowd is pursuing Jesus for benefits, pursuing Jesus for healing. 
And that seems to be, as we look at this crowd, the depth of their engagement. They are there to consume what Jesus is offering. They want the healing. They want the exorcisms. They want the excitement that Jesus brings to the town. I think it is important for us to note this distinction between being a part of the crowd and being a disciple. Because one of the telltale signs that we are part of the crowd is that Jesus is primarily for us useful. I I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. I don't really care about the relationship, but I really don't want hell. Or I believe in Jesus because it makes peace with my family. Or I believe in Jesus because it's kind of afterlife insurance. You see, seeing Jesus as useful means that he is just a product, a means to an end, which is not Jesus. In contrast, a disciple wants Jesus because he's lovely. Because it's Jesus that you want. Because you love Jesus' words and Jesus' presence. The gift of Jesus is not other things. The gift of Jesus is Jesus. There's a vast difference between having Jesus because he is useful and having Jesus because he is beautiful. If you have Jesus as useful, here's what happens in your internal narrative when life goes bad. What's Jesus done for me lately? What's Jesus good for me today? If Jesus has died on the cross to purchase you for himself and has loved you at the extent of crying, Eloi, Eloi, Lamasebekthani, how can we possibly say day to day, What good is Jesus for me? Jesus is lovely. Jesus has purchased us. Though we were sinners, do all the judgment of God's wrath. So are we consumers of Jesus? And if so, what happens when Jesus doesn't give you what you want or what you deserve? Disciples don't see Jesus as useful. They see Jesus as lovely. We see in this passage Jesus again showing his authority in his call. He comes up the mountain and he calls 12 disciples whom he calls apostles. He calls 12. Now the number 12 shows up again in the Old Testament. It's a very significant number in the Old Testament. God called the 12 tribes of Israel. It appears that Jesus is self-consciously patterning himself after God in the Old Testament by calling 12 disciples to start the people of God around him. So there's two things that are happening here, self-consciously showing Jesus' authority. First of all, he is calling 12, uh, patterning himself after God's work in the Old Testament. But second, and even more significantly, Jesus is putting himself at the center of the people of God. These twelve are around Jesus. 
And Jesus is declaring simply by doing this that I am the center of a true relationship with God. I am the center of the disciples' life and world and all that he is. Now, it's important to to make a distinction between apostles and general disciples. The apostles that Jesus called fulfilled a very unique place in salvation history because they were witnesses to uh, the resurrection. Uh, They were given authority uh, that is different than what is given to uh, the disciples um, today. However, when we look at the apostles, we are also looking at the profile of a disciple. And so Mark is using the apostles to also show us what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And as we look at the discipleship that these uh, 12 demonstrate, we see what it means to respond to Jesus' call. There are two things involved. First, responding to Jesus' call means that we are in his presence. Look at verse 14a. He called them to be with him. The first requirement of a disciple, of a true follower of Jesus, is that they spend time in Christ's presence. They are with him. This is the foremost requirement. Jesus says this a little bit differently, but similarly in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, where he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. John is using the word abide where Mark is using the idea of with, but I like the the, uh, image of abide with the vine and the branches. We are with Jesus when we are meaningfully connected to him so that his sap, his word, is flowing freely into us. So when we talk about what it means to be with Jesus, it is more than just being in the room of Jesus' followers. It is like a marriage where you are connected to Christ. You are with Christ so that you share All that is yours, nothing is your own any longer. It is a covenant relationship where Christ gives you all that is his and you are connected entirely to him. It is a relationship of being together like a a man is with a wife. Notice that to not abide is to be thrown out. If we fail to be with Jesus, if we are not actually with Jesus, abiding in him, the evidence will present itself. We will bear no fruit. We will become withered branches. And the end of a disciple who is not truly abiding in Christ is to go back to the place where the crowd is outside of Christ. 
They are in danger of judgment. So how do we, how do we abide? That's an important question. I think that a, a helpful image is to go back to John chapter 10, where Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd. And he says that the sheep hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice and they come. As we are talking about true followers answering Jesus' call, one of the telltale ways to know whether you are being a true follower is what is happening in your heart as the words of Christ are being preached. Do you find yourself being drawn closer, desiring more conformity, more understanding, more of Christ as he is preached? Or do you find yourself distracted? Do you find yourself more interested in your plans for the following week? Do you find yourself cold and not connected to the words of Christ as they are being spoken to you? Because in John 15, if we are abiding in Christ, Christ's words abide in you. There's an experience of closeness. There's an experience of of delight in those words. The second, we see that presence is the first thing that responding to the call involves. The second is participation. So Jesus calls the disciples to be with him, and then second, he sends them to preach. So there is presence with Christ, but there is second also participation with Christ. Christ sends his disciples. Saved is the beginning, not the end of our walk with Christ. Faith is not a 401k where you put your deposit in, you set up your account, and then the best advice there is for you is to leave it alone. No, Christ is not a 401k. Christ is someone that you are in participation with, that his life has formed you into a missionary, into one who speaks of Christ, shares Christ, and makes disciples of Christ. Disciples go into the world to make Christ known. I have been with Christ. I want you to be with Christ too. Jesus' last words to his disciples in in the Gospel of Matthew is this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That wasn't just the job description for the original apostles That's a job description for every generation of disciples. What's good evidence that you are a disciple of Christ? You are involved in the ministry of making disciples for Christ. Answering Jesus' call means that there is Jesus' presence in your life, and your life is participating with his mission. Disciples make disciples. Have you answered the call? Are you with Jesus? The second thing that we, the second mark that we see true followers of Jesus possessing, true followers confess Jesus is Lord. And here we look at verses 20 through 30, which have some heart stopping verses. So I, uh, I expect uh, uh, we'll have some excitement <laughs> before this section is over. 
So as we look at verses 20 through 30, we see what uh, is called in, uh, in Markan literature, Markan scholarship, a Markan sandwich. It's a fancy word that pretty much is what it sounds like. Mark has a, a tendency in his narrative to start a story, interrupt that story with another story, and then finish the first story. And the reason that he does this particular device is to make the reader think about both stories side by side. To recognize that these stories interpret one another. So what do we have in, in verses 20 through 30? The first thing that we have is we have this surprising story that Jesus' family is coming because they have heard about all of Jesus' ministry and they are saying, we need to get him away because he has gone out of his mind. Jesus, our, our brother and our child, has gone crazy, and we need to hide him away. The second story that takes the middle part involves scribes from Jerusalem coming and sharing the report or their opinion that Jesus is not doing his ministry by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. So what we have in this Markin sandwich is two groups of people, the family and these scribes. What do they have in common? Both possess insider, expert knowledge. I mean, who should know who Jesus really is better than his brothers and his mom? I mean, when you think about the stories in Matthew and Luke, How could Jesus' mom be asking this question at all? And yet, we have them so concerned about how Jesus' ministry is is taking effect and the, the fame it's creating and the results it is creating that they are wanting to take Jesus and hide him away because he's crazy. And what about the scribes? They are experts on the word of God. They know the Old Testament. They can almost likely recite it from memory. And what does the Old Testament most of all reveal to us? It reveals to us who the coming one will be, what the coming one will look like, how we will see the coming one. So if anyone should be able to say, I see the Torah, the word of God walking in the flesh... I see Isaiah's prophecy of the Holy Spirit upon a person casting out demons and healing people. I see the fulfillment of all of these scriptures. I see it in Jesus. It's as clear as day. They should know. But here's the tragedy. Here's what the Mark and Sandwich wants us to see. They are both taking what they should know and they are perverting it And putting a lie in its place. Putting a deception in its place. Now Jesus' family is not committing nearly as serious of a confusion as the experts of the law. Jesus' family are calling him mentally unsound. The experts of the law are actually telling people that he is an agent of Satan. He is working by Beelzebul or Satan himself. And that second one is far more serious and receives a lot more attention 
from Jesus, but both of them share the identity of being experts who should know, twisting their knowledge into something else, refusing to accept, to confess with the truth that they should know, which is this, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus answers the scribes, first of all in verse 23, by saying that their view is clearly absurd. If Satan is out casting out Satan, then Satan's kingdom has become absolutely dead. Satan casting out Satan means that Satan is already destroyed. So he's showing the absurdity of that possible explanation. But then he goes on to show in a parable the reality of who he is in comparison to the lie that they are trying to propagate. He then tells them this parable where he speaks of uh, a, a house with a strong man who cannot be plundered unless someone comes and binds the strong man. And once the strong man is bound, then all of his goods can be plundered. Jesus is saying that, that Satan is the strong man who is holding all these people in captivity through demonic possession. And the only explanation for why Jesus is able to release these people from demonic possession, that he is able to exercise all of these demons, is because he is the, the, the one who binds the strong man, who has bound Satan, who has overpowered him and put him into a place of weakness and complete captivity. He is bound. And because, uh, only because of that is why these people are being plundered, are being set free from the power of Satan. So the parable reveals that Jesus is not an agent of Satan. Jesus is a more powerful being than Satan. Jesus has lordship over Satan. Jesus has control over Satan. And so Jesus is revealing himself again that he is the destroyer of the kingdom of Satan and the bringer of the kingdom of God because in himself is full deity. Jesus has continued to reveal himself through Mark as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the one who calls the twelve to be the center of the people of God, as the one who binds the strong man. He is revealing over and over again very clearly that he is Lord. So here we have kind of a classic example of, of C.S. Lewis's trilemma. We have some people calling Jesus a, a lunatic, and we have some people calling Jesus a liar, and we recognize if we really do focus on who Jesus is, that neither one of those descriptions fit. I have shared this quote before, but I think it is worth hearing again from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. See, Jesus is revealing that if we confess what we truly see, we confess Jesus is Lord. 
And that is why this passage includes a most serious warning against tampering with this truth. Tampering with the truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is working by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, what the the scribes from Jerusalem were doing is they were taking the work of God, the power of God, they were taking the Holy Spirit and they were calling that work and that power and that agency Satan. They were calling the most holy thing the most unclean and unholy. And Jesus gives a serious warning about tampering with this truth. Let us look at verses 28 through 30. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Scary verses. Again, before we talk about them, the unforgivable sin... Jesus' description of the unforgivable sin again points to his divine authority. Notice that he says this simply on his own authority. Verse 28, truly I say to you, Jesus is telling us who is forgiven and who is not forgiven. To say this statement is to assume divine authority. So what is Jesus saying in these verses? First, let me say this. If this verse scares you, uh, be comforted. That's a good sign. If this verse scares you, it's probably not about you. If you worry that you may have committed the unforgivable sin, that you may have lost Christ because of something you did or said, it's not talking about you. The unforgivable sin is talking about somebody who is so hardened towards Christ, so stiff-necked towards Christ, so absolutely without ignorance about Christ, and yet still calls him evil. That is the person that is in danger of committing this sin. The unforgivable sin is to knowingly attribute the work and power of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And it's because the scribes were in grave danger of this that Jesus makes this warning here. They were coming very close to the unforgivable sin, saying that the Holy Spirit is actually the spirit of Satan in you. What makes this an unforgivable sin? Well, first, it's very obvious. If, if you have now identified the Holy Spirit as the agent of Satan, you have cut yourself off from salvation. Because you are not going to seek Satan for your salvation. You have become so hardened, so opposed, so certain that Jesus is not who he says he is, that Jesus' power is not from God, that he is no longer a source of salvation, a place of salvation for you. And so it is, in, in, in fact, an act of being so hardened towards the gospel that the gospel has no, no uh, ability to even get a hearing from you. Second, it means you have made yourself God's eternal enemy. 
There are two examples in this text that represent the unforgivable sin. You can see first in verse 11, what do the demons do? The demons confess you are the Son of God. That's the best confession of Jesus in the whole uh, book of Mark at this point. You are the Son of God, the demons confess. But even as they confess you are the Son of God, do they submit? Do they have their faith in him? No, they live as his enemy. They live to oppose him. They live to destroy his, his work. And the second we see in verse 19, where we are told uh, Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve who betrayed him. Judas Iscariot knew Jesus better than anybody. Judas Iscariot walked with Jesus for three years, saw the miracles, was there. He should know Jesus as well as anybody, and yet, at some moment in time, he rejected that clear revelation, he rejected the confession, Jesus is Lord, and he betrayed him. But you see what both of these particular entities reveal? It is perfect knowledge and then complete rejection. Most of us are still too ignorant <laughs> to, to even worry about the unforgivable sin. But it is an important thing for us to recognize. There is a warning here of those who listen weekly to the gospel preached and instead of receiving it with gladness, only leave hardening themselves. That is a dangerous path to take. If you receive the preaching of the word and respond to it with a hardening as opposed to a, a coming, a repentance, you are working yourself up the ladder of being without excuse. So I beg you, do not continue to harden your hearts to the preaching of the word. Because look at the good news of verse 28. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter will be forgiven. You might be here thinking that the unforgivable sin is murder or adultery or even denying the Lord. Those are not unforgivable sins. The scriptures will tell you they have been forgiven. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer, all forgiven in Christ. David was an adulterer, forgiven. Denier of Christ, Peter denied three times and was forgiven. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter all you have to do is respond to the gospel of grace, respond to the offer of God's forgiveness in Christ, and whatever sins, however great, however many, they can be forgiven. They can be removed. You can repent and have salvation. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Confess to the Lord. He will forgive. Amen? So the third mark of a true follower of Jesus, we've seen Jesus, that true followers answer Jesus' call, true followers confess Jesus is Lord. Third, true followers put Jesus first. True followers put Jesus first. 
So we leave this story of the scribes, and Mark brings us back now to Jesus' family, who is, has now finally come to Jesus, and they are ready to take Jesus. They're ready to put Jesus in a safe, calm, rubber room where everything's going to be okay. You're going to work this out. You're going to come back to the way you were. That's what Jesus' family has finally come in verse 31 to do. We see Jesus' family is outside. Jesus is in some uh, room. He's having a, a meal or he's having a conversation. And he's surrounded by a circle of people with him. And so Jesus' family is outside at the door. And they tell somebody, go inside there. Tell Jesus, your mom's here. It's time to go. Come on outside. Let us just secretly go back home because your mom's here and you know your mom is your mom you got to do what your mom says and then jesus answers verses 33 and 34 he answered them who are my mother and my brothers and looking about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god He is my brother and sister and mother. So there you go. You can uh, say that to your mom at the the brunch today. When you (laughs) these are these don't show up on many Mother's Day cards, Um, but it showed up on Mother's Day here. Anyhow, Jesus basically gives a uh, thanks but no thanks to his mom. I'm where I'm supposed to be. I'm with my real mom, my real brothers, my real sisters. It's kind of an ouch. Do you feel the ouch? If you're the mom, oh, you're, you're with your mom, not, not with me, but you're with your mom. Who gave birth to you? <laughs> you can imagine. Do we ever feel like Jesus' biological family? Does that describe us ever? Do we hide or walk around with an embarrassment about Jesus? Do we kind of want people to know Jesus, but don't go crazy with Jesus? Don't go too far into that. It's great to have Jesus in your life, but don't go crazy. Don't follow these verses that say, go be a missionary. Don't follow these verses that say, uh, if you don't love me more than your mother, you're not worthy of me. Don't, don't follow those verses. Understand that to be embarrassed about Jesus or to try and hide our relationship to him from the world is not honoring God. And at the end of the day, do you want to be honored in God's presence? Or do you want God to be embarrassed when you're in his presence? Mark 8.38 says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. If deep down inside of you, If deeper than your faith in Jesus, 
Is it a desire to not let Jesus get out of control in your life? Or to keep yourself from being embarrassed by Jesus? You're acting like Jesus' family in this passage. And that's a dangerous place to be. True followers of Jesus show Jesus is first by making him visibly first. Being in the will of God is pictorially seen in this scene as in whether you are inside with Jesus or whether you are outside. The true followers of Jesus are with Jesus again. Jesus' words towards his family are shockingly countercultural. Honoring your parents, your family, your mother, your father, that's number one in this culture. You honor your mom and your dad, and I think it's very much a, a, the, the case down here. Family first. Your calendar is only available if the family doesn't already have something to say about it. And so family is number one. The only thing that can trumpet is honoring God. And Jesus, in this passage, put himself in the same place and the same priority as God. He essentially is saying, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He is saying that your love and your devotion to Jesus and his call upon your life must trump even mom, even dad, even family. Tough words. Nothing goes above our commitment to Jesus is what a true follower shows. The bond of a true follower to Jesus transcends the bonds of flesh and blood. Now that might seem like a harsh word, but look again at verse 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I think that is a beautiful verse for Mother's Day. It means that Jesus welcomes you into his family when you become a true follower of him. In his family, you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, and you have Jesus in your family, Jesus calling you brother, his father calling you son or daughter. You receive Welcome into the Father's house when you become a true follower of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful place to be. So as we conclude, this passage clearly shows what a true follower of Jesus is. First, what isn't a true follower? Notice in this passage, a true follower is not just someone who says the words, Jesus is Lord. The demons have already done that. Second, a true follower is not just being part of the crowd that likes Jesus. Many who were not disciples of Jesus did that. Third, a true follower is not just someone who knows Jesus really well, who even grew up with him in their house. Jesus' own biological family did that. In contrast, the true follower is the one who answers Jesus' call, confesses him as Lord, and makes him first in his life. 
It means that we have responded with our heart and our life in faith to Jesus as the one and only Savior, Son, and Lord. It means to give our entire life in covenant to Him. We see the difference between the bandwagon Christian and the true follower made most stark in one more passage of Scripture from John chapter 6. We are told after Jesus gives some particularly difficult teaching that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, this passage shows the tragedy of a bandwagon Christian. They are so close to Jesus. They have spent a lot of time with Jesus. They have seen a lot of Jesus. They know a lot of Jesus. But they do not have the words of eternal life in them. They have held back true relinquishment, true submission in saving faith to Jesus Christ as Lord. They do not truly know him as Lord, and the end of them is that they don't have a saving relationship for Jesus Christ. For all their good behavior and good appearances, they stand outside. While the true family of God is with Jesus. But friends, the good news, and here's where I want to end, is that Jesus' call to be a true follower is still made today. It is still made to you regardless of the number of times you have come close and said no. It is still available today. It is available to all who respond like Peter in this passage. Come to Jesus as the one whose call is the words of eternal life, and he will give you eternal life. Confess Jesus as Lord and follow him. He is the good shepherd who will lead you all the way home to his father's house. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.